Welcome to Sentient Planet. The person that inspired me when I was a child was Jacques Cousteau. The series on television of the underwater world of Jacques Cousteau. And one of the things that he said was that people will protect what they love. And so that's the approach that I have, is inspiring love of our fellow beings of this incredible planet. Hi, it's Susan. Welcome to the show, our third episode of Season 3. What a free-spirited life our next guest is leading. Surfing every day the waves call to her and swimming at every opportunity with her beloved whales and dolphins, whom she's dubbed the Cetacean Nation. On land, she speaks on their behalf and educates her legion of social media followers about the sentience of all species and the need to love and respect every individual animal we encounter. She's the one and only Peggy Oakey, passionate environmental activist, artist, and teacher, and one hell of a skateboarding sensation in her day. She was the only female member of the groundbreaking Zephyr team of 1970s California. Peggy's original artwork has been displayed in 21 one-woman exhibitions, 40 group exhibitions, and more than 80 private and commercial collections. Perhaps her best-known work is the Origami Whales Project, a curtain of 28,000 paper whales folded to raise awareness about the death toll from modern commercial whaling. Currently, she's campaigning for the release of Tokatai, the southern resident orca who's been captive to the marine entertainment industry in Florida for the past 51 years. So we talk about Toki's evolving situation the history of the human-whale relationship, and what's going on for wild cetaceans across the planet today. I spoke with Peggy while she was visiting the island of Dominica, shortly after she and a group of friends had spent several long days hanging out in the ocean with multiple sperm whales. Peggy, welcome to Sentient Planet. I'm delighted that you can join us today. So you're down in the Caribbean on Dominica, and you've been swimming with sperm whales recently. Can you tell us what that's been like? Thank you, Susan. It's been quite a wonderful experience. We did have five days on and in the water uh, with them. Wow. Different people have different wishes in their life, personal dreams and all that. And mine was to actually be in the water with them and and when I was in the water with them, looking at them, being in their present, I was very quiet, calm. I didn't have any kind of camera or recording equipment. I just wanted to have the full experience of being with them. And I was just in awe and blown away going, wow, okay. They look just the way they do in the, in the photos and they sound just <laughs> the way I hear them. So it was just a big thing of awe for me. <laughs> so was it, a, was it a family of whales that you were with or was it just a couple of individuals? Well, each day we encountered different individuals and groups, primarily uh, small groups of two, five, six, and different activities that they were up to. Sometimes they were simply resting, sleeping, and then there might have been a couple of them socializing along in the group. We were all very, very respectful, but I thought that I was super respectful. <laughs> and all I did was I sort of offered myself. I just very quietly was present and had my hands in, in namaste because it was like, oh, this is, this is finally happening. I'm, I'm in the presence of these incredible beings and whatever they want to do, I'm just observing and appreciating and, and respecting them. I didn't try to touch them because I just felt like it was really up to them. If one was to come up and touch me, then fantastic, you know, but very close. And to have that happen for me was basically my dream fulfilled. <laughs> fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. And to, and to have some of them, including some calves, swim like underneath me and turn and look up at me and our group was talking about how close we were able to get and 
we're also talking about not being anthropomorphic about things. But I really felt like through our encounters that we felt accepted by them and that there was a sense of mutual observation. And I feel like that's really quite a blessing because it's rare in the world for humans to be in that space where you have a mutual observation between species. Of course, there's lots of times when we see an animal and and they're looking at us for maybe a few minutes or something, but these encounters, some of them lasted 20, 30 minutes. Wow. It was really just a beautiful thing to, to feel like, wow, maybe they're as curious about us as we are of them. You know, it's hard to, uh, hard to know for sure, but I just felt like there was a, a wonderful acceptance. And one of the things that I talk about in my talks about what happens is, for example, the gray whales that are calving and nursing, and they bring their, their calves up to humans in the ponga boats. The same with humpback whales that people have encounters with when they're in the, in the water or even just on a boat whale watching and humpbacks come right up to the boat. And, you know, something that I, I pondered starting a long time ago what it would be like to be in the presence of a whale and remembering just the very grim history that humans have had imposing on whales. I can't help but wonder about the level of intelligence and forgiveness and wisdom in an animal such as a whale that had suffered so, so immensely at the hands of humans, at the hands of whalers. And actually a friend shared with me when she was in San Ignacio Lagoon on a trip She went down there and one of the mothers that came up and approached the boat with her calf had a harpoon scar in her back. Hmm. It's very hard to to argue that these whales, you know, despite what they've been through, that there's something, something very admirable to me about them. Right. So I have I have massive respect. Yeah, the word forgiveness is what um was what I was thinking as well as you were were talking about that. Because of course they have awareness of the brutality with which we've treated them in the past and oh. and still in the present. And we, we'll get mm-hmm. to that later in the interview. I think we need to keep people informed about the fact that whaling is unfortunately still still something that occurs today. But back to the sperm whales just for a second. So one of the guests from season two of our show, um, the ecologist Carl Safina, of course, yeah. he's, he's studied and written beautifully about sperm whales. And I've heard you say that they're your favorite whale species. Mm-hmm. So why? What is it about sperm whales in particular that you find so incredible? But to me, what's fascinating was a lot of the things that Carl Safina had said, which is that they're a unique species. There's no other genus in the world of whales that are called, you know, the physeter, the sperm whale. They are the largest toothed mammal on the planet. They are one of the deepest diving, Mm. and they have really close uh, social bonds. One of the things that that I learned after reading the first book about sperm whales about 20 years ago, I became a sperm whale groupie. And, <laughs> and, I, and I read another book, uh, Sperm Whale Social Evolution in the Oceans by Hal Whitehead, who is one of the foremost sperm whale researchers in the world. And he was, ta- he was affirming the strong uh, matrilineal societies, the bonds that they have. And he compared them with the African elephants, which uh, Dr. Safina also referred to as far as the, the African elephants having very strong, or uh, maybe Asian elephants too, having very strong social bonds and matrilineal societies. It was so interesting as I was learning more and reading also about elephants and then to come across the statement from Hal Whitehead about this comparison. Yeah. Well, Carl talks a lot, or Dr. Sfina, he talks a lot about the way that the culture of those sperm whales uh, is organized and the transference of knowledge from the female yeah. elders and the protection offered to the young, et cetera, also being, being quite unique to that species. And that was really beautiful to hear him share that as well, because that's so true. In the, and I follow... Uh, like the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust on Instagram, and I see the videos and the elephants, they care for their young. That's like their priority. And that's what Dr. Safina had said. And that's how it is with the sperm whales. And sadly, the sperm whale populations got severely wiped out because these whalers would take advantage of this incredible, beautiful bond that sperm whales had. And 
they would basically target a calf and then pull it aside to their boats and, you know, secure the, this injured calf to their boat. And then as the adults and all the rest of the, the family members in the pod would not abandon their young, they would just wipe out each one in that group. Mm. It's a very sad thing to think of what these incredible beings had been through. Yeah, there just seems to be, unfortunately, no end to the cruelty we're capable of. Um, you've dubbed mm. dolphins and whales the cetacean nation. I just, I love that term. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I find it interesting that you're a lifelong surfer, you have this love of the ocean, and maybe that's also where your love of whales and dolphins comes from. But I'm just curious about how that's all evolved for you. Well, I would say that I I grew up watching nature programs as a child. And then as I became a surfer, I had seen images of dolphin surfing. And then finally on a trip to Australia, I saw dolphins surfing. And I was just so moved. It was such a beautiful thing that these incredible beings were surfing waves, doing the same thing that, that I love so much myself. And I just felt that there was this connection over 40 years that I read some hints from scientists that play was a sign of intelligence. So the fact that they were surfing waves really motivated me further to protect them. You know, they're kids in the ocean. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love that. Play a sign of intelligence. That would make a lot of animals quite intelligent. It would. It would. <laughs> yes, it, it's great that that hypothesis has probably become more and more affirmed through various uh, studies by field biologists observing different animals playing. We see so many animals playing all the way to, to cows and calves and even um, fish. It's really quite incredible. It's wonderful to see that these things are being proven. Right. And then as you've moved through life, obviously your empathy for animals as sentient beings has clearly grown and grown. And so I'd like to dig into your activism a little bit. Peggy, let's, okay. let's talk first, if we could, about the campaign that seems to be most near and dear to your heart at the moment, and that's the global effort to free Tokatai from captivity. Now, of course, she's a southern resident orca who's been exploited um, for the past 51 years in very horrific conditions in a tank at the Miami Seaquarium. So not all our listeners will be familiar with her and her situation. Could you give us a little background and maybe you could also offer some updates on the efforts to free her? Yeah, sure. In the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, there were captures in the Pacific Northwest of southern resident orcas and also northern resident orcas. There was what was referred to later as the Pen Cove Massacre. And it was a time when the captors of the Southern Resident Orcas would chase these orcas. They'd spot them, and eventually they got so advanced with their technique by using spotter planes to follow the mothers and calves as they separated from the males. And the males were trying to distract the captors, but the spotter planes were able to locate the mothers and calves and direct the people in the boat, the men in the boat, to the areas where they could find these females with their calves. They would herd them, basically scare them, terrify them with loud blasting things like flares and... and Explosives. Hmm. They drove a large group of mother and calf pairs into an area called Pen Cove, and they closed off the bay with the net and separated the mothers and calves, and it did not go very well. And the reason why they called it the Pen Cove Massacre on that particular date in August was because three calves drowned trying to escape the net. They, you know, they charged the net and, and got entangled and drowned. And then one mother trying to get to her calf on the other side also got entangled and drowned. Mm. And the men were then ordered to hide the bodies of these, these whales by slitting their stomachs and filling them with boulders and, and anchoring their bodies to the shore to hide this, this you know, terrible in this incident. It was later discovered and revealed, and it was during that capture when Tokitai was a calf, approximately four years old, and she was kept there for about two months before she was shipped to the Miami Seaquarium. 
Once she was shipped to the Miami Seaquarium, she was purchased actually by this aquarium to be a possible companion for an orca named Hugo. Mm. It turns out that Hugo was a young Southern resident orca who was captured about two years before her. And they could recognize each other's vocalizations because each ecotype of orca has their own dialect and they were able to recognize their calls. Right. And they were put together in a tank for close to something like 10 years, the tank that she's still in. And he couldn't stand being in, in captivity. He, he really did not fare well in that captivity. There's different stories, but bottom line, he kept ramming his head into the tank wall. He cut the tip of his rostrum, you know, like a human's nose, in the process of nearly breaking the glass one time. And they stitched it back on, and he he kept ramming his head and ultimately died of a brain aneurysm. Mm, yeah. That was uh, in March of 1980. And so she's been alone ever since, ever since he died. Yep. She's not had the companionship of another orca. And, of course, they get driven crazy, like what happened to Tilikum in captivity. And, right. and Hugo couldn't stand it, and that's why he kept ramming the tank wall. So very tragic. And the Sequarium has put some dolphins, Pacific white-sided dolphins in the tank with Tokitai, but there's no apparent camaraderie. It's bottom line, she's been without the companionship of another orca from her ecotype for now over 40 years. And they're highly social species. They're very much, as we were talking about with the matrilineal cultures of sperm whales and elephants, this is also the case with the southern resident orcas. The families stay together. The males always stay with the mother because the mother feeds their sons their entire lives. It's hard for some people to understand. I think that now, now that we've all experienced isolation through COVID, not being able to see our family, our loved ones for at least a year, to multiply that by 51, 51 years of that. And right. it's, it's a real heartbreaking thing for me to think of. Yeah, it's just so hard to get your head around it. And, and then it's, of, of course, the space is so confined. So it's exactly. uh, 51 years in something the size of, of your bedroom is really yep. probably a, a good comparison. And being that cetaceans are highly acoustic beings, they're less visual than acoustic. And to put, put a cetacean in a small, a very small concrete tank where her body length is longer than the depth of that tank. She cannot even have her fluke on the bottom without her head sticking out. Yeah, she can't dive. So it seems like uh, human beings are starting to understand more and more, you know, just what is morally uh, wrong with keeping cetaceans and orca in captivity because there's a huge movement, of course, across the world now and has been for decades to get Tokatai out of that situation. And my understanding is that the idea is to have her released and then brought back to her home waters in the Pacific Northwest where she has a family that probably still remembers her. As far as you're aware, where are the efforts up to? It's been uh, really good to see that there are still quite a number of people working for the release of Tokitai, also referred to as Skylai Chaktana by the Lummi Nation, and many people know her still as Lolita. There's, of course, the Lummi Nation, the, the two women that are leading this campaign and uh, threatening a lawsuit, Peta and Howard Garrett. They have a court case filed against the Miami Aquarium, and that apparently recently has been considered by a judge to be something to be heard. There's my effort Nine years ago, I started campaigning for, for Tokitai. Currently, right now, we have a, a petition campaign. One of the, the things that's an advantage at this time is there's a change in ownership that's about to happen very soon. The other bit of news that came up in September was the public availability of the USDA, U, uh, United States Department of Agriculture, inspection report on the Miami Aquarium. Mm. Thank goodness that people like Miami Rose of Animal Welfare Institute jumped on it. 
And she's been fighting for the welfare of captive orcas for a very long time. And But she commented, basically her opening words were, it is without equivocation one of the worst inspection reports I have ever seen for a U.S. marine mammal facility. Right. When you read this report, here's just a quick summary. Dilapidated tank surfaces with peeling and sloughing paint, exposing dolphins to hazardous materials, rusted surfaces leading to unsanitary conditions. This marine park was built, I believe, in the 50s or 60s, and there's been zero improvement. This park has experienced that many years of exposure to the ocean. and So corrosion, yeah. Yeah, so there's, that's, that's one point. Then there's the poor water filtration management leading to increase in bacteria and algae and several tanks and pools. They identified parasites because they're not properly treating the water that these marine mammals are being kept in. Chemical levels that were not managed properly that cause irritation to the skin, the eyes, and the lungs of these animals. Marine mammals were being fed poor quality fish. Yikes. Thank goodness this was reported. It was just really just disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it begs the question, right? So the USDA goes in. They obviously have some governance over animals in captivity. They go in. They find all of this damning evidence in their report of ways that the Miami Sea Aquarium is not stepping up and taking care of its animals and particularly Tokatai effectively. Where is the enforcement of the regulations that are supposed to be in place to keep these animals at least in healthy conditions? Yeah, and that's where APHIS should be doing the job. That's A-P-H-I-S, Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, I believe that's what it means. I can't answer to why they have not in all these years taken away the permit from the Miami Seaquarium. Right. But reading this report, it seems like plenty of justification for revoking their permit to keep these animals, including Tokitai. There's also an AV, which is capital A, capital V, for attending veterinarian. And thank goodness the attending veterinarian at the time was looking after, was honestly looking after the well-being of all of these marine mammals. And this AV had recommended against feeding this bad-smelling fish to the animals. And yet the staff went ahead and did it. And a week later, they found inflammation in the blood work in Tokitai. Mm, of course. Yeah, and, and this kind of thing can cause illness or death. What, what is the matter with these people? Oh. Okay, so from bad to worse, none of this is good. It actually sounds like her situation is potentially more dire than last I heard. So what can people who are listening, how can they get involved in the effort to put pressure on her legal owners to get her out of there and get her into a healthy environment. What steps can we all take to be a part of that? I would say that we need to keep the public pressure up, continue to raise awareness, and urge other people who find how unacceptable this is to take action, to not just post some sort of a sad emoticon you know, in response, but to actually step up and take action for, for Tokitai. I have this blog, which includes some action links, including the AWI uh, petition to Thomas Vilsack, who is the head of the Department of Agriculture, and to write letters to APHIS, to sign our petition, to, to do everything that we can for her. We as humans have so many privileges and choices, and Tokite's only choice has been to continue living as she has now for over 51 years, under conditions that I think that no human could tolerate. And despite that, despite such tragedy in her life, the isolation and the poor treatment, her inner strength and grace inspires me and thousands across the world. And I just urge people, let's give our all for her long overdue return to her family and home waters. Thank you, Peggy, that's so beautifully said. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans 
dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. You also fight for the so-called Maui dolphin, and they're a critically endangered species that's unique to New Zealand. What, what's happening to them? Being a surfer and following the endless summer dream, I've been going to New Zealand since uh, 1980. So now that would be 31 years. And it wasn't until about 15, 16 years ago when in the community where I, I go and I stay for the surf that I learned about this little dolphin. And it's called the Maui dolphin, which is a subspecies of the Hector's dolphin, Cephalorhynchus hectori. Maui dolphin is Cephalorhynchus hectori Maui. They're the world's smallest dolphin. They are found only in New Zealand waters. The, the word Maui is a Maori word for basically one of their gods. So I learned about this dolphin about 15 years ago uh, and became involved with the community each year following that and volunteered with art activities and, uh, and ultimately for the last 13 years have been a volunteer art actions coordinator. <laughs> okay. And so it was about 10, 11 years ago that I started this campaign called Let's Face It Visual Petitions for the Maui Dolphin and uh, continued campaigning for them and doing art type of actions. It's just a really sad thing because when I first learned about them, they were estimating something in this, like a hundred of these Maui dolphins. The numbers dropped down to about 70s or so, and then 60, 52. And then the numbers kind of come back up, but still below 60 mm. of this one particular subspecies. And they're found only off the West Coast of the North Island. It turns out that the New Zealand government can do a lot more with the fishing restrictions over 90% of the cause of death of these dolphins, of the Maui dolphins, and I believe also the Hector's dolphins, is by drowning as bycatch. Yeah, that was going to be my question. What's, what is the threat to them? So it's bycatch from fishing. Yep. The powerful fishing industry, even in New Zealand, is still the controlling factor to saving these dolphins. And as we know, or a lot of people might know, the vaquita porpoise, the second smallest cetacean on the planet, found only in the Sea of Cortez, I think the most optimistic estimate is that there's 20 of them left. And they're also drowning in gill nets by fishermen in a different reason, poaching the totoaba fish, which they ship the swim bladders of to China. Right. And so this, this fishing industry, oh gosh, I'm, it's really a sad thing. And, I, and I'm so grateful for documentary filmmakers, such as the filmmakers of the documentary that recently came out, Seaspiracy, as in Conspiracy. Mm -hmm. That's a really important film for everybody to watch. Anybody who loves dolphins and whales, sharks, marine mammals, seabirds, sea turtles, anything that lives in the ocean and the ocean and life on this planet itself to watch that documentary. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that update on the, on the Maui dolphin. One more shocking thing is that sometimes we see a video of a whale or a dolphin that got entangled in a net and these people are earnestly fighting to save its life, to untangle it. And we feel good and go, oh, wow, that's really fantastic. But most people don't know that and this is according to the International Whaling Commission Scientific Committee's report that nearly 308,000 whales and dolphins die every year from bycatch, which is you know the actual fishing process, or entanglement in fishing gear, such as fishing gear that's been discarded from the fishing industry, lost or discarded fishing nets that get entangled around sea life, and that nearly 50% of the plastic pollution in the ocean comes from fishing gear. Yeah. So it's a really important thing that I hope people will understand. And if they watch the documentary Seaspiracy, I think they will get a grasp of what's going on in the oceans. Right. And then be able to make those connections. Those ghost nets that you're referring to, I know that the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society spends a lot of its activities out there in the ocean, you know, reeling those in when they see them and, and pulling them out of the ocean. Yes. Um, but obviously they can't keep up with all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And thank goodness there are 
a few other you know, organizations, groups out there retrieving nets, addressing this issue. And there's a great company, I couldn't mention them, it's called Bureo, B-U-R-E-O. And they're working with fishermen down, I believe it's in Chile, and buying their damaged nets off of them and recycling this mass of plastic netting material and converting them into these pellets and then making other things out of them, such as skateboards, <laughs> <laughs> sunglass frames, uh, Jenga games. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, that's a nice seg. That's a nice segue. Can we go back into your beginnings a little bit so that our listeners can get to know you a little more if they don't already know who you are? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I've always been, as a child, I was always quote unquote a tomboy, and I used to do things like get into rock fights with other boys. We'd be the girls' team against the boys' team, and riding stingrays long before BMX was a word. And (laughs) we would like, especially me, I would go out there on my stingray and go out to these dirt lots and have like jumps over dirt and all. So this is in Los Angeles, right? So let's let's set the stage for people. You were growing up in LA in the 60s and 70s. Yes, in the 60s and 70s, uh, growing up in the coastal area of LA, just inland from Playa del Rey, Marina del Rey. And my brother started making skateboards. And even before then, we were riding the very dangerous skateboards that we'd buy with the, I called them the Fred Flintstone wheels that were very hard and literally like rocks. <laughs> and, and so so when the new wave of skateboards came out with urethane, polyurethane wheels that were much safer than the rock wheels, um, we started skateboarding again. When I was practicing my, my sort of surfing maneuvers on the hill near the surf spot, I was, I guess, maybe discovered or something. And, and one of the boys on this team called the Zephyr Skateboard Team approached me and said, oh, would you like to be on a skateboard team? And I thought, hmm, okay. So <laughs> I went to the surf shop, the Zephyr Surf Shop, and became a member of the team. And I was the only girl on the team. And we, pract- we loved skateboarding as if we were surfing. We just We were pretending that we were on waves, and that was actually something that other people weren't doing or known to be doing at that time. And we we went to this skateboard competition, the first big skateboard competition with the revival of skateboarding. And instead of doing the old sort of tricks, like 360s and other sort of daffy things and stuff, it's like putting your feet on two skateboards and doing these weird maneuvers. <laughs> we were presenting ourselves more as if we were surfing on the concrete. And it really blew away a lot of people, including the judges. They weren't sure what to think of us. And when I was there, the other girls were doing the other traditional tricks. And I was doing the surfing kind of stuff. But I was also doing the 360s and other maneuvers that were from the previous time of, of skateboarding. Ultimately, that contest and what we did from that point on became well documented and we became famous for that. Also for having an attitude more, you know, we were just a bit more rebellious. So they made a documentary about us called Dogtown and Z-Boys. That came out in 2001. Yeah, so the, the documentary became quite popular and I myself have never been seeking fame or fortune, really. <laughs> but the fame from that, I felt, was a very helpful thing for me because I'd already been an activist for whales and dolphins and very concerned about cetaceans and the planet and animals that I've used it as my platform. And my little phrase is, I work it for the whales. They, oh, I love that. That's great. So you, <laughs> so you have this wonderful platform that your early um, youth as the only female skateboarder on the Zephyr team has given you. Let's talk a little bit about your origami whales project. We've hunted whales for hundreds of years. We've killed millions of them. Most people probably now remember that or know that in the 18th and 19th centuries, whales were our source of fuel. Um, Our ancestors had their lamps lit by whale oil. They used the oil to make soap and candles. But the incredible thing, of course, is we we don't need that oil anymore. And yet, Commercial whaling continues to this day. How is it that that is happening? Maybe you could give people a little bit of a rundown on the current state of industrial whaling in the world and talk about your origami whales project. Well, there are three main countries that continue to whale. 
to kill whales by sad numbers. And that would be Japan, Norway, and Iceland. And for the last couple of years, Iceland has taken a break. And so I'll, I'll check in on what's going on with Iceland now, now that the horrible whaling was going, has ended for the last couple of years. It's, it's, he's taking a break. This man was literally killing something in the range of over 130 endangered fin whales. Norway continues to hunt in the hundreds of minke whales, which is the smallest of the great whale species, a baleen whale. And then Japan left the IWC over a couple of years ago. They, they were just the, the, the bad guy in the bunch for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and they just threatened for quite a while and finally owned up to their threat that they were going to leave the International Whaling Commission and do their own whaling in their own waters, no longer going all the way down to Antarctica and killing minke whales. And humpbacks, they were taking humpbacks down there too. Well, they did not succeed in that. They threatened to do that in 2007, but because that would have caused worldwide outrage. Because the humpbacks are such a, such a star in the whale world. People know what a humpback whale looks like and how they've got the big, beautiful pectoral fins and they flop around and they breach beautifully out of the water and all those people go whale watching to see them. Right. Yeah. But they did threaten in 2007. They said that they were thinking about going after 50 humpback whales in the southern hemisphere off of the Antarctic. And that led me to do a series of paintings. And so I've been a painter for decades, primarily in watercolor. And in response to this announcement from the Japanese government, I contacted some scientists and was able to get access to the research catalog of humpback whales sighted off of Antarctica. And I did 50 paintings of humpback whale fluke images from the ID photos of these individual whales to show in my exhibit that each whale is a unique individual with their own markings, with their own fluke shapes and scars and all sorts of things. To just acknowledge the individuality of these whales and to raise awareness that the Japanese government had threatened to kill them. And the same happened shortly after with Greenland. Greenland was actually granted permission by the IWC under quote-unquote subsistence whaling to kill 27 humpback whales. And that was, I believe, 2008 or 9 when that happened. And so I did a series of 27 humpback whale flutes from the various photo ID records of North Atlantic humpback whales. Beautiful. Yeah, and those whales in the North Atlantic uh, have names like salt and patchwork and kava and these beautiful markings on their flutes. It's really incredible. Which would then lead me to your question about my origami whales project. Yeah. Well, what happened with the beautiful paintings that you did of the humpback whale flukes? Oh, I sold some. Some of them have been purchased and gone to loving homes and other ones I still have. I did a portrait of a sperm whale, basically a fluke painting. It was acknowledged by this woman who was an organizer for the Santa Barbara Whale Festival. And she said, oh, can we use that painting as our poster for the whale festival? And I said, sure. And in exchange, she offered a, a booth for me to sell my paintings and artwork. I coordinated an art activity with getting kids to do paintings and write out postcard messages to President Obama at that time to tell Japan to stop whaling. Did he do it? No, he didn't. But when you really think of it, the United States has this somewhat tenuous relationship with Japan, and the United States has a very strategic military base, which happens to be in Okinawa, Japan. Exactly. If the U.S. government was to say, well, we're going to impose economic sanctions against Japan, for killing whales, Japan could easily say, then get the heck out of our, uh, our country. <laughs> out of Okinawa. Yeah. And the Okinawans are not happy to have the U.S. military there. So I think that's the reason why no president in the United States has yet to impose an economic sanction against Japan for whaling. Well, and also the dolphins that they take in the cove over there, that still happens every year as well. That's another thing too, yeah. And so if people saw that documentary, The Cove, they would know what's going on in that realm and and just how that's associated with the captive cetacean industry, how dolphins are herded into these bays. The most prettiest, youngest, most trainable ones are selected by trainers and shipped off to sea aquariums and oftentimes the rest are killed. Brutally, 
Yes. Yeah. And on to educating people about whaling and commercial whaling. I came up with this idea. They were having the next Santa Barbara Whale Festival a couple of years later. Uh, the organizers said, oh, would you like to organize some kind of art activity? I said, sure. And the idea of origami creatures came up, origami sea creatures. And I said, let's do origami whales. This is a whale festival. Let's just get some kind of a campaign going with it. And I started to, to contact other organizations that were against whaling at the time. And they were very supportive. And with the Santa Barbara Whale Festival, we started out with this booth and we got people to fold origami whales. We got something like 500, but the goal was to reach 1,400 because that year in 2004, between Japan, Norway, and Iceland, 1,400 whales were going to be killed. So I needed more origami whales and these other organizations posted on their website and said, send origami whales to Peggy Oki. <laughs> and I was able to get that many whales that you know, I was keeping track, I was keeping count and all. And then I was offered an opportunity to present these 1,400 origami whales to the International Whaling Commissioner of the United States. I put, had to put my artist thinking cap on and how am I going to present in the most impactful way this big collection of origami paper whales that I have in these big plastic bags. And so I, I came up with this idea and shared it with a friend who's also very artistic. And she said, come over and do it at our house. We can do it in our big living room and invite your friends over. And so there are six to eight of us working at a time over an entire weekend. And we hand stitched the 1,400 origami whales and organized them by color. And so it basically was presented as a big sort of a rainbow wall. Beautiful. Yeah, thanks. It was, it was really wonderful to see it all come together. And I went to Washington, D.C. and met with the IWC delegate and presented this beautiful curtain. And, and that was the start of the Origami Wales Project. There was still very little coming out in the news, mass media, about the whaling, that it was still going on because people thought that the whales had been saved when the International Whaling Commission said no more commercial whaling. Because of this lack of public knowledge of what was going on out there and watching this very powerful video just showing the numbers, nearly 20,000 whales have been killed since 1986. That number really struck me and I started crying and I said, what can I do for these whales? Mm -hmm. And I'd already been in touch with a uh, president of this one organization, Cetacean Society International. They really liked what I was doing. They offered me um, a uh, nonprofit umbrella. When that was approved, I said, okay, I can at least get some financial support to make a curtain of 20,000 origami whales. <laughs> And I had something like six months to do it before the next IWC meeting. And during that time, these numbers were coming in to be closer to 28,000 whales having been killed since 1986. So people were sending me origami whales and I was visiting schools and youth programs. And I rallied volunteers locally to come to these stitching parties that I had. And we made this curtain of 28,000. That's incredible. Yeah, and then it got displayed at the International Whaling Commission meeting in Anchorage, Alaska, and we had this beautiful display. I set it up like a, a massive rainbow maze that you would walk through all these aisles and aisles of origami whales. What you're describing there is so powerful. So to, to summarize, the IWC was formed, the International Whaling Commission. There was a moratorium through that international body that was put in place that said, that's it. We're going to stop whaling. Let's end it. But since that moratorium, some 28,000 whales have been killed regardless, mostly because of these three countries that have continued whaling. Yes. And that number is actually a very conservative number because there's this term in whaling called struck and lost. 
And so imagine being out in the big open sea with 10, 20 foot size waves breaking underneath these whaling ships and the guy on the bow, the, the harpooner, trying to shoot a whale while this bow is bouncing up and down at sea. And then how many whales were hit, but the harpoon did not sink in deep enough into the whale's flesh to actually land the whale. They call it landing when they actually are able to pull it in and bring it up to the boat and cut it up into pieces. There's the number that were not reported, and that could be almost an equal amount of whales. Yeah, It gets struck by a harpoon. It could have had fractured bones, damaged organs, and it escapes the whaler for maybe a day or a week or something, and then it dies. Those, those numbers were not reported. They're not counted. So you start this origami whales project that you so beautifully described as a way to bring awareness of the fact that this modern day whaling is still occurring. And then you took that curtain of tens of thousands of origami whales back to the body that's supposed to be in charge of their protection. Yeah. The NGOs that were about protecting whales and ending whaling, they hosted a reception for all of the delegates. And at least it was a message that I think a lot of people appreciate. And I was doing it as an environmental art project and other people with other NGOs are doing things in a different way. And as an environmental art project that really communicated back that we are watching your failings and and we're bringing it back to your attention and they need to be doing a much better job. Yeah. And the thing that I also liked about, that I still like about the Origami Wales Project is that, you know, first it's raising awareness. And then when people are going, oh, wow, what can I do? I encourage them to fold whales, empowering people of all ages to be involved in this large-scale environmental art project. I really feel that that's another important thing is to engage and empower people. Great. Peggy, another question for you. What is the most profound or perhaps surprising encounter that you've ever had with a non-human animal? Could you share a story with us? There's been quite a few. I'll share one of my first encounter with a whale. I had a few encounters with dolphins for that, but it was Christmas morning in 1999. So it was right before 2000, the change into the millennium. On a Christmas day, we're we're in California, kind of like half Christmas days. The weather is quite nice. We get this warm air temperature and clear skies. And that's how it was this day when I paddled out at this one surf spot down in San Diego County. And I caught a wave. I was paddling back out and I saw some spouting. And I I thought, oh, okay. Oh, I think there's some gray whales migrating south. It's that time of year. And I just thought, okay, cool. And then I caught another wave, paddled back out. And I'm sitting at the lineup, not that far from shore. And the water's not that deep. And all of a sudden, there's a, this gray whale's head, spy hopping, raising its head like a periscope from a submarine. And it's literally less than 50 feet away from me. Wow. And it, its head is like turning and looking around. And we met eye to eye. And I just went, whoa. You know, and I was not, I had no fear. I, have, I don't fear whales. And then its head sank slowly back into the water. And then another whale came by really close to that one. And I didn't see its head, but it's just graciously moving this large arching back out of the water and then back under the water. And they both disappeared. And there was, I think, two other guys surfing out there at the same time. And they're like, oh, wow. (laughs) So so that was the most profound encounter because probably not so much by chance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You think they were communicating to you? Yeah. And then so I, I found out that at that time there was a battle going on with environmental groups trying to to stop a salt mine facility from going into the San Ignacio Lagoon, which is one of the prime nursing habitats of the gray whale. Down in Baja. You know, I jumped in on that battle, but thank goodness that was towards the end of the the battle and there was a victory. They were able to stop the Mexican government and Mitsubishi Corporation from building a salt mining facility there. And and as we know, it's been protected as a cabin nursing ground. But, uh, But after that, I thought, okay, so what else is happening with whales? And then I found out that whales were still being killed. And I, and I went, wow, most people don't know this. 
It's really incredible how your love of so many different things have come together in such a kind of seamless way. You're, you're a fantastic artist, you're surfing and skateboarding, your activism, your love of these animals. It just seems like there's a seamless flow that's been occurring for you throughout your life. Oh, yeah, thanks. We need to find the things that we love and pursue the things that matter to us the most. And that somehow with that, having the faith that whatever we're going to end up doing is going to be a culmination of all the things that we've, we've been doing, such as I was studying art and I was also studying field zoology and environmental biology. And then it all circled back around to environmental art. <laughs> yeah. I've spoken for at least 25 years at public meetings where the state of California, for example, was taking public comment about the marine sanctuaries that were not in place yet, but being in favor of having marine sanctuaries. And as we know now, we, we're seeing proof of that in California, that marine sanctuaries are very effective in protecting marine life. So things like that, just so being used to getting used to talking in public. And I used to be very nervous. I used to have scribble down notes and say, this is what I'm going to say. And I'd go up there and stumble over words sometimes. And it's just that thing of practicing something that matters so much to us that we're passionate about. Well, and, th and thank you for doing that, Peggy, on all behalf of everybody who loves whales. I know that you follow a vegan diet these days. Why did you yeah. become vegan when? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just share that I started becoming a vegetarian very gradually about 36, 37 years ago. I gradually cut out the various uh, meats and I uh, ultimately was vegetarian, true vegetarian for at least a couple of years and then drove past a dairy farm and saw how these cows were kept and I could smell it for at least a mile away the squalor, the, the smells of, of manure and blood. It was like this horrible smell all mixed together. And I went, wow, these cows are forced to live in that. And I just immediately said, that's it. No dairy product. And then also learning about how chickens are kept and no eggs. And I became a vegan. And I've been vegan now for 22 years now. So there's a lot of people who love animals but aren't vegan. How do we help those people make a shift in, and by connecting um, diet to their love of animals. It's a very tough thing to think of, wait, you know, I guess awakening people to say, oh, okay, this is what's going on and I'm going to change to a plant-based diet. There's this term that I had become aware of called cognitive dissonance. And I went, what does that mean? And I'd read little blogs and things about it. And I still couldn't understand it. And then I finally got it. And it's people, they have feelings about something, and yet they don't fully make the connection. Part of it is a convenient ignorance where people that are animal lovers or people who claim that they're environmentalists or people who say they care about their health, and yet they don't fully make the connection between what they're eating and the impact of what they're eating on other animals uh, on the planet or on their health. And those are the three main reasons. Eventually, one of them is a priority reason why people go vegetarian and vegan. And my love for animals is why. There's different ways of approaching it. How do we raise awareness about this? And I tend to avoid sharing the graphic images, which are so much the truth about what's happening to them. But I think that there's some people that just, because of this cognitive dissonance, will shut themselves off. They're just going to turn away. They're going to click it off and they're not going to watch it. And so I try to inspire people through love for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> the person that inspired me when I was a child was Jacques Cousteau, the series on television of the underwater world of Jacques Cousteau. And one of the things that he said was that people will protect what they love. And so mm -hmm. that's the approach that I have is inspiring love of our fellow beings of this incredible planet. I'm just so mind blown every time I learn something else new about something living on this planet and the interconnectedness of living things and, and how different species have evolved. Appreciating the modern day documentaries of 
Sir David Attenborough. He's to me he's just the legend hero, you know. It's like Absolutely. Oh my God, what would it be like to meet Sir David Attenborough? <laughs> you know? I'm sure he'd love to meet you too, Peggy. I'm sure he would. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I hope that happens when we do because I, I love that man so much. And uh, Yeah, as as do I. He's I've been watching him since I was a child as well, for sure. Yeah, and thank goodness that he's actually bringing up the topic of our diets, the impact of human diets on the environment. Yeah. He just continues to be an advocate for life on this incredible planet that he's presented for decades. Yeah, I mean, and he's opened so much of the planet to all of us. And I made this comment to a previous guest on the show about how we seem to be learning so much and growing in our appreciation of all of these species that we are seeing appear because we have the ability to now technologically um, as well. And we're in every nook and cranny everywhere, it seems, to be able to get an opportunity to witness all these incredible species at the same time that they're kind of checking out, right? I mean, it's the same time we're losing yeah. so many with, you know, three species every hour going extinct. So it's it's this juxtaposition, yeah. right, of learning and appreciation at the same time creating the conditions for their demise. It really is uh, quite a time in geologic human history that we've come to. And there's a, a documentary that came out fairly recently, uh, Eating Our Way to Extinction. Mm. And it's very well presented, uh, excellent uh, cinematography. It just breaks my heart every time I hear about another species being lost. And a lot of it is at the hands of humanity. We are the one species that has so impacted this planet. And, we, and we're just right there teetering on that edge where we can reverse this if we just all wake up in time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Amen. Peggy, you are such a free and positive spirit, and these are very dark times in the world. How do you manage to stay positive? Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I, sometimes there's a few moments where I feel like, wow, there's really little hope left. But my, my strength comes from other people, people like, like Jacques Cousteau, people like Jane Goodall, Martin Luther King Jr., the 13th Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama has expressed caring for the planet and the environment. People like Viktor Frankl, who have shared some words of wisdom from their own personal tragedies and challenges. I think of those people, and I also think of the victories and how, even though sometimes victories may be relatively small, to just go, wow, we can celebrate that. We can raise awareness about this victory happening because enough people cared to raise voices and do something about things such as circuses, keeping wild animals as entertainment. In France, it was just announced uh, about a week ago or so that France is banning the use of wild animals and circuses. They're also going to be banning uh, mink farms in their country. Yeah, I read about that. Those are great victories. And, and over in the UK, they've got new legislation that recognizes the sentience of non-human animals. Yes, the sentience of lobsters, crabs, and octopus. So it sounds like they're going to ban the boiling of lobsters alive. So it's happening as people unite, as people raise their voices for our fellow sentient beings. It's seeing that there are people with various skills. I think following whatever we're passionate about, whatever we are good at doing, such as me with my visual art, there's people out there that are really good filmmakers. And I mentioned Eating Our Way to Extinction. There's Cowspiracy, The Sustainability Secret. There's other documentaries, The Game Changers, What the Health, Dominion, Earthlings, all these filmmakers out there presenting the truth to the public. And that gives me hope as well. Yeah, there's been so many incredible films in the last 10 years in particular. Fantastic. We well, are an inspiration to all of us. 
I offer you 100 vows of thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, Susan, for covering these topics that are very important to me and to you. Yes. And Peggy, please keep up all the great work and we'll be sure to include lots of notes in our show notes about actions that people can take. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art Direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro Music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All Interstitial Music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>